You know, great communication fuels every great relationship. Doesn't matter if it's at work, doesn't matter if it's in the classroom, it doesn't matter if it's friendship, if it's marriage, or even parent-child, great communication fuels every great relationship. Our son Joseph was about four years old, maybe three years old, and he and Julie were at the park one day where Joseph was playing and being, you know, that age, three or four years old, definitely in the toddler era of life, falling down is just kind of a part of life. That's just what you do. That's how you learn how to stay upright, hopefully, as you get older. And sure enough, on this particular day, Joseph took a nosedive into the pea gravel at the park. How many of you have ever had kids that have scabs on their face? Can I just see a show of hands? It's a good time, isn't it? Good, good times. Well, Joseph went down face first and he stood up crying. <laughs> Julie, being the parental savant that she is, she kind of waited and to see kind of how injured he really was. She didn't freak out and she went, come here, buddy, tell me all about it. And Joseph kind of toddled over to her. <laughs> I fell down. It hurts so bad. It hurt my face. And Julie, as only a mother can, took Joseph in her arms and said, oh, buddy, I'm so sorry you fell down. And Joseph replied through the tears and the anguish, I do not forgive you. <laughs> now, great communication fuels great relationships. And Joseph and Julie have and have always had a great relationship. But on this particular day, they were miscommunicating. Julie wasn't apologizing because she had caused Joseph to fall down. She was saying, Oh, I hurt because you hurt. I'm so sorry. Joseph, in his three-year-old mind, didn't understand that and thought that somehow Julie had been involved in a grand conspiracy to make him fall down, and they were not communicating. You know, as we continue the series Explore God that we began last week, I think it's entirely appropriate that in week number two, we take up the subject of great communication where God is concerned. Last week, we established the fact that God is relational. Whatever you want to believe about God, you need to understand that that is primary to who he is. He is ultimately relational. God is love. By definition, he is about relationship. And we established last week that the Christian faith is kind of hinged on the fact that God's purpose for you, God's purpose for me is relationship with him, that our purpose is our pursuer. And if that's the case, then communication with this pursuer, with this God who created us, has to be central to relationship with him. That's what this relationship really comes down to. And the Bible is God's really essential tool for communication, to help us understand who he is and how to live in relationship with him, but also to help us understand how this world works. He's given us this Bible, this gift, as an expression of his love so that we understand how to interact with him. And the Bible is far and away the lone, runaway, bestseller of all time. It's not even close, not even John Grisham 
has sold as many copies as the Bible has sold in this world. And yet, for all of the copies that it sold, for all of the people who have read it, it remains one of the most misunderstood, misinterpreted, misquoted, misapplied books that the world has ever known. And so today, our task is really very direct. It's not easy, but it's direct. And it's to answer this question, is the Bible reliable? Is the Bible reliable? Is it something that we can come to and really and truly rely on for life, for understanding who God is, for understanding how to connect with him in a meaningful, appropriate kind of a way? And I think to to get at this, we need to see specifically what the Bible says about itself. In the book of 2 Timothy, chapter number 3, the Bible says this about itself. All scripture, say all, all All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is God-breathed. That means from Genesis 1-1 to the beginning of maps and everything in between that, all scripture is God-breathed. Now, that, that phrase God-breathed is very, very important. In the original Greek, it is theonoustos. It, it means that God inspired every single word. From Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, all the way to the end of Revelation, all of that is God's word. And yet it's against that backdrop that a lot of times, those of us who go by the name Christian find ourselves kind of put back on our heels and a little bit defensive if we're not careful when somebody will say to us something like, wait a minute, are you suggesting that you believe that the Bible is literally true? Of course we don't believe that. We do believe that the Bible is true from beginning to end, but not that it is literally true. For example, Jesus, who is God, said of himself, I am the bread of life. Now, do you think for one second that Jesus really meant to say, I'm a loaf? (laughs) No. You see, here's the problem. You have a holy, perfect, morally flawless, all-knowing, all-powerful, omnipresent God trying to communicate with finite people like me, with people like me who are finite, who are not morally perfect, who are far from all-powerful, far from all-knowing, far from omnipresent, and he's trying to communicate who he is so that we can live in relationship with him. And so he has to use a lot of different literary tools at his disposal to communicate these eternal truths that ultimately are beyond our grasp to completely fathom, to completely understand the depths of. And so when you come to the Bible, you need to understand right from the jump that we will never be able to prove the Bible. You you can't prove the Bible from one end to the other. For example, I can prove to you that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Watch this. 2 plus 2, there's 4. Thank you very much. I just proved 2 plus 2 is 4. You can't argue that intelligently. But where the Bible is concerned, you have to understand that there has to be room 
for faith. There has to be room for mystery because the Bible is ultimately relational. The Bible is not primarily regulational. It's not there just to give us a list of rules, although there are some. That's not the primary purpose. The primary purpose of Scripture is relationship. And relationship always requires trust. It always requires an element of the unknown. For example, how many of you men in the house are married? Can I just see a show of hands? You, you're a married guy, okay? Men, how many of you know that every single day is a new opportunity to discover in your wife something unknown? To discover in your bride something new and beautiful, something mysterious. I just told you, my wife and I have been married for 22 years, and there are still days when I go, huh, I had no idea. Been there the whole time, I just wasn't smart enough to pick up on it. Am I the only husband that feels that sometimes? You see, relationship requires mystery. Relationship requires trust and faith. Now, that doesn't mean that our relationships aren't founded on some realities, on some basic truths that we know are there. I've got 22 years of reality chalked up with Julie. I know this woman loves me. I know she is all in. Some of the stuff that she's put up with me from over the years, there ain't no doubt about it. 22 years, two children, starting a church together. Those are some facts. And so what I want to do as we launch into this conversation about the Bible is give you some facts to help you with Scripture. The fun part about this for me is the fact that this is universally relevant, no matter where you are spiritually. You might have walked in the doors today, and this is your first time in church ever. First of all, welcome. We're thrilled that you're here, kicking the tires and checking it out. This is really important for you to understand the Christian take on the world. We do believe the Bible is God's word. We do believe that it is inspired. We believe that God protected the translation of it down through the years to give us what we have today. But I want to share with you some reasons why. This is also important for those of us who maybe have been around the Christian faith for a long time. How many of y'all grew up going to church? Let me just see a show of hands. You did vacation Bible school, graham cracker and Kool-Aid. You know what I'm talking about. But you know, here's the thing. We've got to make sure that we can have an intelligent conversation with people who believe differently than we do. We've got to be able to present our case with grace. We've got to be able to say, you know what? This is what I believe and this is why I believe it. Especially, I'm excited for those of you who are students middle school, high school, college students, because I'm telling you right now, at some point along the way, somebody will look at you like you're crazy or stupid because you're a Christ follower, and nothing could be further from the truth. I want to share with you the reality that you do not have to check your brain at the door to be a Christ follower. This has been brought home to us in a very real way. Our daughter started college about a month ago, and in the first three weeks of class, her faith has already been called into question. Why she believes what she believes has already been there. I'm grateful that she's been a part of a church family that helped her know why she believes what she believes. And so she's weathering those storms, but she's doing that because so many people in our church have equipped her to do just that. Now, 
I want to share with you something that if you've been around our church for a while, you've probably seen this before, but I think it so powerfully illustrates why the Bible is reliable, at least from a historical standpoint. We refer to this as the chart, if you will, just the chart. I want to show you kind of what we're talking about here. What I want to do is list for you some works of literature from antiquity and show you how the Bible stacks up against them in terms of its reliability, in terms of its textual integrity, if you will. The first author that I want to mention to you is our boy Homer. How many of you remember having to read the Odyssey or the Iliad in school? How many of you actually read it? I'm just kidding. Who cares? But Homer is one of those people that your teacher assigns it and you go, well, Homer wrote the Odyssey. Okay, well, let's take a look at Homer. It was written in the 9th century B.C. The earliest copies that we have of Homer, we don't even know when they date from. We, we don't have a correspondence from when it was originally written to when the earliest copies actually date to. The number of copies extant or still in existence of those manuscripts is about 643 copies of Homer's works. And the accuracy of those copies goes to about 95%. So if you take the copies of Homer's work and compare it with the original manuscripts, they're about 95% accurate. So when the teacher assigns the Odyssey, you can kind of go, okay, this really was written by Homer. This is what it is. Next up, I want to talk about our man Caesar. Caesar, for those of you scoring at home, is spelled C-A-E-S-A-R, C-A-E-S-A-R. I remember that because I grew up in Houston during the Houston Astros with Cesar Cedeno. How many of y'all remember Cesar Cedeno? Come on. Well, Caesar was a Caesar, and he wrote Roman history in roughly the first century A.D., about the time that the Christian church was launching and taking off. The earliest copies of Caesar's writings date to about 900 A.D. So you've got about an 800-year gap between when Caesar was actually writing and when the earliest copies that we have available to us still were written. The number of copies that are extant, still in existence, are about 10. There still are 10 copies of Caesar's writings that we still have, and the accuracy of those copies really is not even evaluatable. So Caesar is there. Next up is the Roman historian Tacitus. Tacitus was writing his history of the Roman Empire in roughly 100 AD. The earliest copies date to almost a millennium later, 1100 AD. So a thousand years pass between when Tacitus was writing his history and the earliest copies that we have available. The number of copies that we have still in existence, about 20. So there are 20 copies of Tacitus's, and again, the accuracy is not available. You really can't correspond something that was a thousand years apart and evaluate how accurate those copies are. Now, the New Testament comes along. The New Testament was written, obviously, between about 50 and 100 A.D., well within a hundred years of the actual occurrence of the events depicted in the New Testament. The earliest copies of the New Testament date to about 100 A.D., so less than a century passes between the earliest copies and fragments of the manuscripts and the originals. The number of those copies that we have outstanding right now, 5,000 plus. 5,000. So the New Testament takes a look at Homer and goes, sit down. 5,000. And the accuracy is greater than 99%. 
Now, I don't care who you are. That right there is impressive. Just, just academically looking at the textual integrity of the New Testament, the earliest fragments that we have dating to 100 A.D. that compose the New Testament that we read today down to a 99% accuracy. So the next time somebody challenges you on the integrity of Scripture and they say something like, well, it was written by men, it was written by people. Yes, it was written by people. Now, we believe it was inspired by God. He is God and we are not. But the accuracy and the textual integrity is really and truly beyond intellectual reproof. You can't intelligently argue that the New Testament doesn't stand up to the same standards that are applied to other works of literary antiquity. So again, I want to encourage you. When you get challenged about the integrity of Scripture, about what's really written, how do we know? You have something now to stand on. You need to make the case and make the argument with grace and with love, but don't ever be bullied by somebody who has an agenda attached to it. And I think it's really important that we identify a couple of reasons why people discount the Bible. Why is it that we discount? I don't mean other people, but why I do sometimes. I have in my life. The first reason, I think, is something that really and truly makes sense. It is sincere skepticism or curiosity. There are a lot of people who discount the Bible because they are genuinely curious. They're like, okay, well, show me. Is it really and truly accurate? Can I really and truly rely on it? And that makes a whole lot of sense. There's a second reason that I think a lot of people kind of hide behind, and that is masked self-interest. A lot of people discount the Bible. I myself have tried to discount the Bible back in the day because of masked self-interest. Because there are parts of the Bible that just candidly are inconvenient. Let me give you an example. In Exodus, we have the Ten Commandments. And part of the Ten Commandments, God says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. I think all of us would agree, but, you know, especially here in church on Sunday morning, yeah, adultery is a bad idea. There, there's very little that adultery helps. And we would say, boo, adultery. That's a good one. Keep that one. But then along comes Jesus, and Jesus says this, Inasmuch as you have looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you have already committed adultery. ruh -roh. I mean, that's a problem. Now, all of a sudden, the Bible has gone from preaching to meddling. Now, all of a sudden, it's like, wait a minute. You're telling me what's going on in my heart really matters? Woe up. And so, if I can discount the Bible's moral authority, if I can discount its textual integrity, then maybe I get to keep doing what I want to keep doing. I get to really and truly determine my own course. You know, Mark Twain had a great, great quote about the Bible. Now, Mark Twain is not somebody that I would encourage you to go to for discipleship in your Christian walk, but he did say something that I think we could all relate to. Mark Twain said, you know, it's not the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. 
And I think a lot of times in my own life, a lot of times as I talk to people, we try to discount and discredit the Bible because of what it says, because of where it takes us in this life. Thomas Nagel is an atheist philosopher, and Nagel is somebody whose intellectual integrity I genuinely respect. Look at what he says about atheism and God. He says, I want atheism to be true. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Now, that's a strong, strong statement. But I think Nagel's just being honest. He's saying, you know, when it's all said and done, I don't want God to tell me what to do. I don't want God to get up in my business. I don't need God in my grill. I want to do what I want to do. Now, I'm not an atheist philosopher, but I can identify with that. I can identify with wanting to do what I want to do, with wanting to write my own rules, with wanting to live my own life, and in essentially wanting to just say, God, you know what? The whole creation thing, well done. That was awesome. And, and the whole grace and forgiveness and love your neighbor, man, that is good stuff. Well done. But the other parts that I'm not really down with, the other parts that I don't really feel like living by, I'm going to just kind of walk away from that stuff. And yes, you're there, but I, I'm just not going to do it. And so a lot of times we mask our own self-interest and we throw up these, these academic arguments that are really smoke screens. It, it many times, not always, but many times is a flight from accountability. It's a flight from surrendering our hearts and our minds and our love to God that's really at the root of our problem with the Bible. Now, I want to just mention to you a couple of things because it matters. When you look at Scripture and you decide this is real, you are deciding yay or nay on truth. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Now, that's a bold claim. That's strong language. And so it's important that we understand there really are two basic takes on truth. As you look at truth and reality, remember two plus two equals four? That's a truth. That's reality. The first take on truth is the take of absolute truth. Absolute truth means that if it's true now, it'll be true 100 years from now. It is always true. Two plus two equals four will always be true. Now, I graduated from the University of Texas, Hook'em Horns. I sat in a philosophy class with a professor in a black turtleneck drinking espresso who would argue that two plus two is not equal four. How do you know that that two is even real? <laughs> Discuss. Hey, and that's cool. I get that. I totally get that. But for the rest of us who live in the real world, two plus two is four. So what I want to do is just invite you to open your mind up to the possibility and maybe even open your heart up to the possibility 
of absolute truth being possible? Is it possible for absolute truth to exist? Because a lot of people live life based on what they've been taught in college classes, high school classes, believing that there's no such thing as absolute truth. This brings up the second take on truth, which is relative truth, relativism. And relative truth is really the prevailing wind in our culture today, particularly here in Austin, Texas. Isn't that the man? And what a great place to get to live and do life. What a great place to get to be the bride of Christ in the church. But I mean, hey, let's just keep it weird, man. Relative truth. Relative truth basically says this, that there is no absolute truth. That that's the essence of relativism. Relativism says, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, don't tread on me. And again, I understand where this comes from, but I think we need to make a clear distinction here. Your perception of truth is absolutely your perception, and that can differ from my truth, from my perception of truth. But instead of using the word truth, how about just reality, just that there is an objective reality in this world. For example, I'm wearing a shirt with buttons on it. This shirt has buttons. Any place in the world, any era of history, history in the world would affirm he is wearing a shirt with buttons. It's pink. It's kind of a bold move. I don't know if I would have made it myself, but it has buttons. The relativist would question whether or not buttons even exist. The relativist would say, there is no absolute truth. But here's where that breaks down. To say there is no absolute truth is itself a statement of absolute truth. So intellectually, philosophically, relativism implodes on itself. It can't stand up under its own weight. So we're left with the reality that there has to be something real in this world. And it's against that backdrop that Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Jesus said, he is the ultimate expression of truth. Now, one of the things that I think is fascinating about the Bible is that it is absolutely essential to the Christian faith. It is absolutely essential to living out, working out Christianity. But we need to make sure that we understand the Bible is not in and of itself the central element of the Christian faith. The Bible is not the central component of the Christian faith. It is essential, but it is not central. As a matter of fact, the Bible points us from beginning to end toward that which is central, the hub around which all of the Christian faith rotates and revolves, the hub which holds it all together is Jesus. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 1, the Bible says this about Jesus. The Word, 
became flesh. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. This may be my favorite thing about Jesus. Of all the things that just blow my mind, that Jesus is the word of God made flesh. That everything that God ever said, that everything God ever commissioned to be written down in his name, Theonoustos, God breathed, was pointing toward the word made flesh, incarnate, incarnational. And that Jesus perfectly captures, that Jesus perfectly expresses, that Jesus perfectly lived out grace and truth. That Jesus perfectly extends to me the grace that I know I need because he is God and I'm not. At the same time, he communicates to me the truth that I need his grace. I think about Jesus as he was confronted one day by his detractors, the anti-Jesus guys, the Pharisees, the academics, the legalists, the ones who had rules about the rules. And they threw at Jesus' feet one day a woman who was caught literally in the act of adultery. And they said, what would you do with her? The law of Moses says she should be stoned. Or are you going to forgive her? And they, you, just, you can sense it in the biblical account, this, this drama, this sense of anticipation as they just waited with bated breath. They were either going to trap him into saying that the law didn't matter and didn't count or that he was God and he could forgive sins. And they were like, we got it. And Jesus just kind of bowed down in the dirt and started doodling, just drawing in the dirt. And the Bible says finally he stood up and he said, no, you're right. The law of Moses does say that she should be stoned. Go ahead. Except I'll tell you what. The one of you who is without sin himself you throw the first stone. Can you imagine the frustration? Can you imagine? It's like, oh, we had him. And the Bible says one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, they walked off. They dropped their rocks until it was just Jesus and the woman left there. Broad daylight. And Jesus asked her, woman, which was a term of affection. He wasn't being disrespectful. Woman! He did, that's not how Jesus operates. <laughs> but he said, woman. Where are your accusers? Who condemns you? 
Now, I want you to think about that woman for just a second. Put yourself in her place. The shame, the gratitude. Oh, I mean, she, he just saved her life. I believe, we don't know this, but I believe that she was standing there with her head down and eyes downcast, and she said, no one. And then Jesus said, neither do I. Neither do I condemn you. Now, go and sin no more. There's a better way. And that's the truth. But I don't condemn you. And that's the grace. This is the word made flesh. This is what Jesus invites you into in relationship with him. That's why we explore God. This is not just an intellectual pursuit. This is not just an academic question that we discuss over espresso. This is the central question of your life. The most important thing you will ever address. Do you trust him? Personally and definitively with every part of your life. I want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. And in this moment, I want to ask you directly, do you trust him? More to the point, have you chosen to follow him, trusting him? And you need to understand that it's a very simple question. It is not an essay question. It's yes or no. It's binary. If you have, then I want to invite you just to be praying with everything that you've got right now. But if you've never chosen to follow Jesus, the Word made flesh, then I want to invite you to do that right now. To pray a prayer of trust, of relationship beginning right where you're sitting. Just silently talk to God. Call out to him and just say silently, Jesus, I need you. I give you my life. You are God and I'm not. I confess my sin to you. I claim your forgiveness. And I want to walk with you in grace and truth. from this moment forward forever
to ask you just to remain in a spirit of prayer for another moment because this is holy ground that we're on right now. If you just prayed that prayer and you meant it for the first time in your life, I want you to know that this church is a safe place for you. We invite you to be a part of this family of faith, imperfect though we are. This moment is the most important moment of your life. It's a moment that needs to be marked. It's a moment that deserves to be marked. So if that was your prayer and you meant it for the first time in your life, I want to ask you just to raise your hand with heads bowed and eyes closed. If you would just raise your hand quietly but unmistakably high over your head and just hold it there for a moment. As you mark this moment, this is why we exist as a church. To grow the community of Christ one life at a time. And so as a church, we want to help you with this moment to mark it, to take those next steps in this relationship. And so as a family, we celebrate it with you. We like to put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.